Entertainment's podcast from Bottom Line Technologies. Welcome back to this uh, second part of the Bottom Line's payment podcast, uh, in which I'm very pleased to be joined again by Christina Siegel-Knowles, who is Executive Director for Financial Markets Infrastructure at the Bank of England. Uh, I'm Marcus Hughes, Head of Strategic Business Development at Bottom Line and your host for today's conversation. Welcome back, Christina, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Marcus. I'm really pleased to be here. So just to recap, in, in our last session, we covered the impact of COVID-19 on both consumers and businesses in terms of their payments activity. Uh, we also explored the unbundling of payment chains, which is potentially increasing systemic risk as different participants are in, 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 this, in some cases are subject to different levels of regulatory oversight. Um, and then we talked about the emergence of stablecoin which are intended to overcome the, the volatile ups and downs which traditional cryptocurrencies are experiencing. Uh, and we also discussed the possibility of central banks deciding to issue central bank digital currencies. Uh, and, and finally, Christina described some of the important findings covered in the recently published Financial Stability Report. So, so kicking off with, a, with another question for Christina, uh, with so many changes in the UK payments landscape, like proposals to create a, a new payments architecture, what are the Bank of England's priorities for retail payments over the next few years, please? Thanks, Marcus. I think as I, I was explaining earlier, I think the bank really sees innovation and change not as something that's in tension with our mandate, but but something that that we want to support and is is very much supportive, um, provided that it's got the right regulatory framework and provided that we are ready to respond to it. Um, so I think I, our goal is to make sure that that the UK payments landscape will be resilient and provides that that level of confidence for for users um, that I was speaking about as being so essential to financial stability and so essential earlier. Um, and and so we want to be in a place where where change can happen and it can happen in a, a way that that's safe and that our regulatory system keeps up and also the technology and infrastructure the bank provides is also keeping pace. Um, and and I think as things as people change the way that they pay it may change the way that our priorities shift. We need to make sure that we are ahead of the, the game when it comes to knowing when something is becoming very much a systemic, when it's becoming core to the way that people pay to make sure that it's regulated appropriately. Um, and, and ideally, we want to be helping to provide a framework so that innovation as it happens and new forms of payment add to resilience rather than, than detracting from it. And I think that is very much possible um, when people have more alternatives. As I've said a couple of times in this podcast, um, that can create uh, just, just a more stable system uh, and one in which you have fewer sort of critical nodes that, that could affect resilience if something goes wrong. Um, and so I think through all of that, there's there's all of the regulatory pieces that I spoke about before in terms of making sure that the UK is moving to a world where, where we really have that same reg risk, same regulation basis for our regulatory landscape. And, and I think that's something that we've been discussing, not just in the Bank of England, but across UK regulators and something that that um, HMT, Her Majesty's Treasury, has been has consulted on in the context of their payments landscape review. And so thinking about how do you make sure that that payment landscape has that level of resilience going forward and that the regulatory framework is appropriate. Um, and it also means that, that 
in our in addition to that regulatory piece, making sure the regulation is fit for future, we also um, need to to be implementing these principles in some of our other Bank of England activities, which include the supervision of existing payment systems um, as well as provision of infrastructure. Um, and so, I think overall, we're we're looking to build resilience through the design. So we're trying to make sure that all of the pieces, whether that's the central bank provided infrastructure or the regulated private sector um, can adapt and evolve over time for changing circumstances. Um, and that we can make sure that, that we're supporting the, both the private sector and ourselves in um, making sure that we're, we're not relying on legacy technologies that we can evolve, that we can um, also adapt to evolving threats, for example, cyber. I think we want to, and I've talked about um, quite a bit, include resilience by creating um, and encouraging a wider range of available payment methods at the point of sale. I think that's that's quite important so you don't get that sort of over-reliance on a single piece of infrastructure, a single way to pay. Um, and I think we need to make sure that through all this change, we're thinking about how do you make sure that that the change itself doesn't lead to risks as you're switching over, that you don't end up with transition risks between systems, between technologies that, that cause, um, cause risk to the system and, and threaten that reliance. Um, and then finally, one that, that's, that's a bit more sort of technical in, in nature um, is that we also are looking to, to move to adopt um, ISO 2022 um, or to, um, data standards, because there are new standards and for people who aren't following this closely, you may, may maybe that most of the podcast listener, listeners are familiar with data standards, but I think there are, there are new ways to, um, to ensure that, that we have richer data that's going to support resilience of critical payments. And then, and I think importantly, then also provide um, the, the basis for greater interoperability between payment systems, which again then reinforces that overarching goal of having um, more ways to pay that are interchangeable, which means a more resilient system overall and more options for, for consumers and users um, in the UK. Great. Th thank you, Christina. Uh, very interesting. So greater resilience, um, uh, more choice uh, in payment instruments and channels, all very important themes. Um, I'll pick up on that um, ISO 2022 uh, point that you mentioned as well. Um, so um, as mentioned earlier, another major change in the UK payments landscape is, of course, the Bank of England developing its new real-time growth settlement system um, to replace the CHAPS high-value payment system. Uh, and this will involve an important new messaging format, yeah, known as ISO 20022. The adoption of this format in the UK is part of a, a massive program to migrate many of the world's market infrastructures to this new format. Um, it's an ambitious program uh, under which this messaging standard is being rolled out across the, the entire world over the next five years, really. Uh, the good news is that this data-rich messaging standard is now globally accepted as the best way um, to standardize and to modernize um, uh, payments and other financial messaging, such as uh, securities processing. Global adoption of this standard will make interoperability between payment systems and security systems so much easier, whether they run on SWIFT or other proprietary networks. Uh, and, and an important part of the overall migration program 
is, of course, the tra transition plans of major market infrastructures. So not, not only in the, in the UK for the Bank of England, the new RTGS, but also the European Central Bank's Target 2 and also the, the US Fedwire network. The migration to ISO 20022 is going to allow payments to carry more structured data and much richer data than conventional payment formats today, like, like Swift MT FIN messages. Importantly, this structured data is machine-readable, and this will greatly increase the efficiency of payments with, with greater automation uh, and greater real-time straight-through processing. Uh, a major reason why I understand uh, regulators are keen to see the widespread adoption of ISO 20022 is that it's going to make it easier to ensure compliance with anti-money laundering requirements. Um, ISO 20022 has many structured fields which can be made mandatory to ensure that important details are provided. So that would be, um, for example, the name and address of the ultimate beneficiary, as well as full details of the originator and any banks involved in processing that transaction. This means payments using ISO 20022 can be mandated to include in a, in a structured machine-readable way all the information necessary to comply with rules like uh, FATF 16 and the EU um, wire transfer regulations. Um, this comprehensive structured data will improve automation and reduce the, the number of false positives when screening payments against sanction lists and watch lists. Um, the increase in information provided can also be used to make it much easier to track payments in real time across multiple banks and across payment systems. Uh, so this will reduce the risk of errors as users are going to be able to include additional payment details and references. Uh, and using this richer data in a structured way will also make it easier for parties receiving payments to achieve higher levels of automated reconciliation. And it would enable really a much richer level of data analytics and insights, which in turn will be able to drive better decision-making. ISO 20022 even carries non-Latin characters, so names and other details in languages such as Mandarin or Arabic can also be accommodated. So, so migration to ISO 20022 for SWIFT's cross-border messaging network is going to start in November 2022, uh, and the coexistence of the uh, older legacy MT standard will continue until November 2025. But, but during this period, there's quite a risk of that some of the richer data carried by ISO 20022 will become truncated or cut off when these XML messages are converted into legacy MT-FIN messages for processing by those banks which have not yet migrated to the new format. So, so unfortunately, these FIN messages are not able to carry so much structured data as the new ISO 20022 format. So SWIFT is therefore working with FinTech solution providers like Bottomline to, to help financial institutions through this uh, transition period and we'll be providing mapping and translation services as well as cloud-based data vaults to to ensure that the data is not going to be lost anyway so so moving on to our next topic um, we really couldn't have this conversation without addressing another highly controversial subject which which remains at the center of um, much debate and um, and uncertainty uh, I'm sure you can guess uh, by that I mean of course brexit so when clocks in the UK strike 11 p.m. on the 31st December, that's already midnight in, in Brussels, this will mark the end of the UK's transition period for leaving the European Union 
and ceasing to be members of the single market and the customs union. So, so even today, in mid-December, we still don't know whether the UK will actually have a trade deal with the European Union, one which prever, uh, preserves tariff-free and quota-free trade in goods, or, or whether actually World Trade Organization arrangements are going to apply. But either way, it's going to be a big change uh, with more forms to complete uh, and more checks to perform. Uh, and what, what is clear is that there's likely that we're going to see some major disruption and delays as these new border arrangements come into force. Um, worryingly, a, a recent um, EY survey found that 80% of UK businesses don't yet know the full extent of Brexit risks and they don't have sufficient preparations in place. That's a pretty high percentage. And of course, the situation hasn't been helped by, by COVID-19. So, so Christina, um, from the Bank of England's point of view, do you have any advice for, for UK businesses that are pre- trying to prepare themselves for Brexit? I mean, I think I think the first the first principle for for all businesses is that that you should ensure fully how regulations that impact your business may change on the first of January, and have pl- plans in place to mitigate any resulting risk to your business. And I think that's that's consistent with advice that the bank has has given from um, from the beginning of of this process. I think something that that podcast listeners should be aware of is is also that the bank has engaged very closely with all regulated firms, including payment systems, to assess potential potential issues and ensure that these are addressed ahead of of our exit uh, or the end of the implementation period um, at the end of this month. Um, And the bank has been very, very active in preparing for Brexit for a long time now, including um, monitoring with great degree of detail potential financial stability risks um, and and potential financial stability issues that that could arise um, and stands ready to make sure that the bank's mandates of monetary and financial stability um, will be met should market volatility increase throughout this period. I think you can. Um, one of the things I mentioned earlier in the podcast was, was the uh, FPC's uh, financial stability rec- report, the latest edition of which just came out last week um, in, uh, and is available on the Bank of England's website. That provides a, a full set of, of assessments of, of financial potential risks and um, in the financial system and and the mitigants that have been play, put in place and an assessment um, of preparedness. I think the the really headline in, um, takeaways are that the financial system broadly is prepared um, and that we think that the the key financial stability risks associated with Brexit have been mitigated. That doesn't necessarily mean, however, there's a difference between financial stability and market disruption. Um, and people should understand that that even if they do see market disruption, that does not necessarily mean the same thing as financial financial stability disruption. Um, and as I just said, the bank stands prepared to respond um, in the event of market volatility um, to make sure that, that monetary fin- and financial stability can be maintained. Uh, thank you for for those um, reassurances about um, the Bank of England's um, preparations regarding ensuring stability, uh, um, uh, even if there is some dis- market disruption, as you were saying. Um, perhaps I can also add some thoughts on how the UK financial services sector uh, ha- has been impacted by Brexit and, and the preparations they've they've been having to make. The, U- the UK's exports in financial services to the European Union are worth more than 
£26 billion, according to the Office of National Statistics. Uh, and despite the, the scale of the, this major business flow and, and four years on now from the referendum, the, the future business relationship between the UK and the European Union does remain uncertain. Uh, however, we, we do know that the European Union has been insisting that it will not allow the UK financial services sector to have their cake and eat it. Um, by that, I mean the UK can't retain access to the benefits of the single market without the obligations, which, which includes, for example, the free move, movement of labour and the acceptance of uh, European Union regulations. So, so as from the 1st of January uh, 2021, the European Banking Authority is, is no longer going to allow UK-based um, financial institutions to continue to passport their FCA uh, Financial Conduct Authority licenses uh, into the, um, the single market. This effectively puts uh, an end to any cross-border operations within the European Union. Uh, the, the European Central Bank uh, has also taken a, a hard line here, emphasising that all activities related to European products or European customers should, as a general principle, be managed and controlled from entities located inside the European Union. Um, th th there has been quite a lot of talk uh, of, of future access to Europe being based on equivalence, but this is a system of regulatory approval that can be withdrawn by the European Commission unilaterally and with as little as 30 days' notice in some cases. So, um, in addition, the European Commission has specified it, it will only grant equivalents in those areas where it's clearly in the interests of the European Union. So, so unlike um, single market membership, equivalence is not a comprehensive system and, and core sectors such as insurance, lending and deposit taking won't be covered by equivalents. For such activities, UK-based firms are left with a, a choice of either having to obtain new licences and setting up regulated subsidiaries inside the European Union, or alternatively applying for permission from individual national authorities to market their services, literally country by country. So, so for, these, for these reasons, the position adopted by most financial services firms in the UK has been to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Uh, over the last few years, many large financial services firms in the UK have been beefed up their existing operations in Europe or established new regulated subsidiaries within the European Union um, through which UK institutions can then uh, manage their European businesses. Undoubtedly, this brings um, extra costs, including dedicated capital, uh, premises, staffing and compliance functions and so on. Uh, and this will potentially make their offerings less competitive. But it's probably even worse for smaller and medium-sized UK financial firms, which, which lack the resources to create separate subsidiaries, as they now face um, expensive and time-consuming uh, license applications to individual national regulators across the European Union. And they'll have to decide if this piecemeal benefit of limited cross-border access is actually worth paying for. According to KPMG, the, the, the European financial centres which have attracted most UK-based financial services firms are actually Dublin and Luxembourg, with more than 70 new firms each. That, that compares really well with 35 firms going to Paris, 31 opting for Amsterdam, and 30 selecting uh, Frankfurt. So in this way, the European banking and financial services community looks set to become quite more fragmented than historically with um, um, 
and this may present challenges going forward. Investment banks have generally gone for the major political and economic centres of Paris and Frankfurt, but Luxembourg has attracted the most asset managers. Um, EY estimate that over overall, banks and fund managers have been moving more than a trillion pounds of assets out of the UK and into the European Union as a result of Brexit. They also estimate that more than 7,500 financial services employees have now been relocated to Europe, which is a lot lower than was originally anticipated or feared. Um, that that 7,500 is in addition to some new hires within Europe, of course, as well. Um, and, and some of that relocation has been delayed by COVID-19. So the timing of the UK's exit from Europe and the additional red tape it's created for financial services firms really couldn't have been worse uh, coinciding with the pandemic. T- turning back to, to you, yourself, Christina, uh, as we draw to a close on this conversation, perhaps you could share with us uh, any predictions you have for 2021 and beyond. In in particular, what changes or innovations are we likely to see in the payments landscape? Thanks, Marcus. I mean, I think think that I should put the disclaimer on the top that if 2020 has has taught me anything, it's it's to stop making predictions about the world. Um, But in the payment space, I think there are a few things that that I would certainly expect. Um, I think the first is is that the UK um, regulatory authorities and working with the government will continue to make strides to move to make sure that the the regulatory framework for payment, um, including emerging payments like stable coins, are fit for purpose, that we're paying attention to risks that might come and also making sure that the the regulatory framework is there to support innovation. So I'd I'd expect things to watch out for in that space would include, for example, HMT's response to the payments landscape review, which I mentioned earlier. I think you'll also see additional uh, insight and and um, leadership from the Financial Policy Committee at the Bank of England, who will be really thinking about how do we make sure that the regulatory framework for, for payments really is, is in place and is future-proof um, to support innovation in the UK and make sure that we can continue, continue to be um, a, a place that is leading for that in when it comes to payments innovation, while also making sure that the UK consumers really can continue to have that confidence in the ways they pay. So I think I expect to see more from ourselves working alongside HMT and the FCA and PSR in the space of making sure that that legislative framework is fit for purpose. Um, Second, I I would expect to see more from us and more conversations both from the Bank of England, um, and also internationally around CBDC, which I mentioned earlier. Um, we are planning, as I mentioned, a discussion paper relatively early in the year that will think about both those regulatory options for, for stable coins and um, the how CBDC and stable coins and other private payments could sit alongside each other, um, and also covering some of the financial stability and monetary stability um, implications of some of these innovation innovations in payments. Um, so expect to see more on CBDC um, and more in particular from the Bank of England on, on how CBDC interacts with, with private innovation as well. Um, and then finally, I, w- I would expect there um, to be just a continuing international conversation about these issues. I think if somebody had told me sort of 
six years ago, five years ago, even three years ago, that, that one of the focuses for a discussion for the Financial Stability Board at the G20, in the G7, in these big international fora, would be the future of payments, I would have been surprised. But I think these this innovation in payments is so important to financial stability. It's so important to the way that the financial system works. And it's so important to get right that I would, um, and there's a lot of opportunities actually, that I would continue that, expect that international conversation to continue. So I think there will be um, continuing activity, continuing output from international bodies, including standard setters on how do they provide that that leadership to create not just um, individual national frameworks, but an international framework that works for, for innovation in payments and also leadership around how do you harness innovation into payments? How do you harness um, not just the things that are coming out of the private sector, but also things like our RTGS renewal project, things like ISS, ISO um, 2022 um, to, to improve um, cross-border payments in particular, um, but domestic payments as well, and provide um, solutions to, to challenges that we've seen in that pay- space. So so I would say, I would look out for, for just a lot more attention, a lot more activity in this area, and pro- hopefully some exciting steps forward in terms of getting the regulatory framework in place, encouraging some of the, the innovation, whether that's in terms of how the central banks are providing things or, or supporting innovation in the private sector, um, and and also thinking about sort of where do, do central banks go when it comes to central bank digital currencies, um, which would be just another um, area for for significant step forward potentially in the way that people are able to pay. Fantastic. Uh, thanks, Christina. Very good. So um, a, a very busy 2021 ahead for the Bank of England with uh, such a comprehensive uh, to-do list. Um, I, I also have a couple of predictions of my own, which I'm, I'm happy to share now. Uh, first, I, I, I agree on central bank digital currency. I, I do sense that the market is reaching the next level in the evolution of blockchain, especially relating to digital currencies. Um, recent work and statements by various central banks uh, around the world makes it increasingly likely that that quite soon one or more central bank will issue their own central bank digital currency a number of central banks are announcing initiatives to create a currency, while others may want to make sure that they are ready on the sidelines just in case adoption suddenly gains rapid traction. Uh, ironically, I think the controversy around Facebook's Libra uh, stablecoin, which has, I think, recently been rebranded as DM, uh, has um, has actually made the, the launch of a central bank digital currency more likely than ever. So for me, it's now more a question of when, not if, a central bank digital currency is launched. Um, We know a number of central banks are exploring the best way to approach this. Um, For example, the Central Bank of Sweden is quite advanced, apparently, in developing a a retail e-krona, which may be one of the first to launch. But I think it's probably the the People's Bank of China, which is most advanced of all. They've been holding large-scale pilots for their E1 in um, various cities across China, um, uh, for example, in the massive uh, tech hub Shenzhen, uh, just across the border from Hong Kong. Um, Typical use cases there have been tested on um, uh, bill payments, uh, transport, shopping, government services. So so for me, after many years of experimentation and, and investing huge sums of money in blockchain, I think central bank digital currencies are now emerging as one of probably the most exciting and and practical applications of of this new technology. Um, My my second and completely unrelated prediction is that 
there will be greater integration between treasury, corporate payments, and payables and receivables, uh, and thereby capitalizing on the, the rich data that's contained in, in messages such as e-invoicing and ISO 20022 payments. This will drive greater insights and far better decision-making about spend management, buyer and supplier behavior, and working capital performance. This, in turn, will encourage wider adoption of supply chain finance and other payment programs, um, which, which, which can help buyers and suppliers manage their cash flow more efficiently and optimize returns on any spare liquidity, of course. Um, as an important part of this big push to achieve greater transparency and better cash flow management, I think we're going to see a growing number of governments mandating the adoption of e-invoicing. Uh, around the world, these, these new government-mandated e-invoicing programs are driving much of the current growth in e-invoicing, currently at about 20% a year growth. Some of the obvious benefits of e-invoicing include greater processing speed, lower cost, improved visibility and control, as well as reduced risk of fraud. But, but this is only part of the explanation. Another highly compelling reason why a growing number of countries are introducing mandatory e-invoicing is that tax authorities want to close the unpaid tax gap through better VAT reporting and more efficient tax collection. In other words, tax authorities want to capture more tax from businesses which have been going unpaid due to poor visibility of businesses buying and selling from each other. E-invoicing that uses a model known as clearance makes tax collection much easier and faster, and hence it's really growing in popularity with more governments mandating this system. Of course, another good reason for adopting e-invoicing is that the rapid delivery and approval of invoices puts a buyer in a, in a really strong position, not only to pay invoices on time, which is important, but also to offer early payment programs for selected suppliers. If these are well-structured, these supply chain finance programs can be highly collaborative and they offer great benefits for both the supplier and the buyer. So for example, the supplier improves cash flow by getting paid early and at a rate of interest, which is generally better than that can, than what can be achieved by their own direct bank borrowing. Meanwhile, the, the buyer can receive a revenue share from the finance provider, which effectively reduces the cost of goods which the buyer is purchasing. So alternatively, in some scenarios, buyers can extend their payment terms further. But even in these situations of extended credit for the buyer, the supplier still gets paid early, with, with the finance provider bridging this funding gap and earning some interest for this early payment service. Um, so that's so, that, so therefore we achieve what's really a win-win situation for both the buyer and the supplier. And arguably, it's also a win for the finance providers too, as they're getting a, a good return on a low-risk asset class, which is self-liquidating. So, so the cash flow benefits of this supply chain finance model have really been reinforced during COVID-19. But although I'm convinced it will grow rapidly in 2021 and beyond, I, I would add a, a word of caution. There have been a few isolated cases where some of the credit terms being applied are unnaturally long and where almost all supplier invoices are being paid early under these supply chain finance programs. That's kind of unbalanced. And in a few of these uh, extreme cases, this has resulted in credit agencies raising doubts when assessing the creditworthiness of big corporates, since it's hard to get a clear view of the corporate's total liabilities. 
And, the, and these credit agencies have therefore questioned whether these liabilities should actually be classified as bank borrowing instead of trade creditors. So I'd really emphasize the need for supply chain finance techniques should be put into practice with balance and with moderation, and also with proper accounting opinions on suitable balance sheet treatment. So, so those are just two of my personal um, predictions. Um, but I do think the time is right for both these trends to, to take center stage. So, so Christina, perhaps with these um, predictions, we should meet the same time next year to see if we were even close to being correct about our predictions. Sounds good. So that's all for today. The Payments Podcast will be back soon with more uh, insights into the fast-changing world of business payments. We do hope our listeners uh, find this uh, session um, useful. It just remains uh, for me to thank Christina very much indeed for being with us today and sharing her great thoughts and expertise. Great. It was my pleasure, Marcus. Thank you for having me. Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.